breathing is imperative to what we're doing. Yes, we're going to be back in Luke. And we're on chapter 7, verse 11. Is that right? And then by God's grace, we're going to go through... Yeah, it'll be next week, maybe even a couple more weeks until we get through chapter 7. But whenever we get through chapter 7, then we will take a break and do some topical stuff. Yeah, we've been in Luke for quite a while, and we're not even... I know. Well, when we went through John, we really didn't didn't do it in detail like we did. We've been doing this. We did. We we would do almost a chapter a day. And we went through Galatians pretty quick. But then when we went through Romans, we were there for 40 I think it was 40 total lessons, 40 hours, 40 40 hours, which it took us 2 years mixing in topics. And that's still going pretty quick. There's people who spend I think Martin Lloyd Jones, I don't know how many sermons he preached, but it was several hundred in Romans. They said that's one of the better series or better sermon series through the book of Romans. That's pretty detailed. I mean he'd go sometimes spend two or three weeks on one verse. Alright, so yes, we're in chapter seven, verse eleven. Alright, so we're coming off of the healing of the centurion slave. And um, so we'll just carry on here. Uh, verse 11. Soon af- afterwards, he went, he obviously being Jesus, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all of the surrounding district. So now we have here another instance of Jesus raising the dead. Literally raising a person who has been dead. Now it doesn't say how long the person was dead. Um, What would you say is the most known account of Jesus raising somebody from the dead? Lazarus. It is. And he was in the grave several days. But it doesn't say here how long. I said he was carried out. Yes. They, they were on the way to the funeral, I think. So it's been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> and so, but isn't it just amazing to, to think about that in your mind that he just walks up, stops them, stops them from where they're going, you know, puts his hand out and says, okay, stop. And then he just uh, he just says, young man, I say to you, arise. And he arises, a dead person. Sits up and begins talking. Uh, it's just incredible. But you see in verse 13 there, when he saw the mother mourning, he felt compassion. And there's many times through the Gospels where we see Jesus showing compassion for people. He always had perfect selfless love for other people. And... Um, and matter of fact, right before he raised Lazarus from the dead, he wept himself. And so this shows you the compassion of God. And it also shows you, you know, I think a lot of times this, this the weeping that Jesus did was in his recognition of the fact that all of this death and all of these things that happened that he is temporarily solving is a result of sin. As a result of the the human race's rebellion against God, and and of course that would be a rebellion against Him, and so He mourned over the condition of the world many times. He was known as a man of sorrows. He did not have. He was obviously he had perfect holy joy because he never sinned, and he was in perfect communion with the Father, and he had a, a joyful life, but he also had a sorrowful life. He was constantly under assault, constantly trying to be killed, 
constantly being degraded, told he was demon-possessed, all insults all the time at him. And he would be the one person on the planet who's ever lived who did not deserve even one insult. When somebody insults me or, or uh, cuts me down, even as a Christian, I don't even argue with them anymore. Because it's true. I have said, you're probably true about what you're saying. Even though I'm trying, by God's grace, he has transformed me. And I, I'm not attempting to sin, but I'm never going to defend myself. But he, being perfectly the perfectly sinless son of God, never deserved even one insult. But again, it just shows you his power that he, in one sentence, would say to somebody who's been dead, like I said, appears for quite a while, and he begins, to, he gets up and he begins to speak. And you see the response. Whenever God does a miracle or, or somebody comes in, in contact with God in, in a miraculous power, it's never laughter or joy or anything. It's fear. You're, you're intimidated by the holy presence of God. And fear gripped them all. Now their response is tough to... to I mean, obviously when they say a great prophet has risen, arisen among us, that's not necessarily... Now, it does say they begin glorifying God. Now, that's usually a reaction that indicates saving response. They're, they're bringing glory to the true God. But it's, it's a little more difficult here because they say a great prophet has arisen among us. And there's many people, even today, that back then would say, you know, when Jesus asked Peter, who do, who do the people say that I am? One of the responses was a prophet. And a prophet... Believing Jesus is just a prophet is not saving faith. Anything other, anything short of genuine, convinced faith that he is the one true God. He is the one true God. Not from God. Big difference there. A lot of prophets, all the prophets, were from God. But he, that he is God is the defining point of when somebody has saving Christian faith. Does that make sense? And so they say, a great prophet has arisen among us. That doesn't necessarily mean, and to me it seems like they didn't believe that he was more than a prophet. And then it says, and God has visited his people. Now whether they're indicating that God in the flesh has visited his people, which would be saving faith, or that God has visited his people through a prophet, sending a prophet, Jesus, that would be unsaving faith. You see the difference there? There's religions that specifically teach, Islam is one, that Jesus is a prophet. They treat, you'd be amazed. You always think Muslim, Islamic religion, how they would hate Christ, and they do hate the true Christ. But they, they, they have a lot of admiration for Jesus the prophet. They say he's a prophet, not God in the flesh. And, they, you know, of course, it's the shirk is the big sin of saying that, that a person, that God takes, has taken on flesh, Claiming Jesus is God is like the key, the biggest sin in Islamic religion. But they all, every time they say Jesus, they, they, well, they say, peace be upon him. That's what they say. Anytime they say his name, peace be upon him. And so they almost in us, in a, again, it's not, they're relieving in a false Jesus, so it's not really any, anything admirable. But they show him more reverence in, in that regard than even many Christians do in how we talk about Christ. But again, he, you know, believing he's a prophet and saying peace be upon him is not uh, anything that's going to bring honor to the true Christ. And so, yeah, in, in Jehovah's Witnesses, a little more complicated. They teach that, he, that Jesus is, was the archangel, is the archangel Michael, became God, went back and being the archangel Michael. And you, and you get different, different versions of how that works itself up specifically. But every time I've talked to one, I always say, you know, is he, I narrow it down to that question, is he the one true God? Is he equal with God the Father? Or is he created, and, he, and he's always created, they say he's the highest, most elevated creature ever made by far. That's not enough. You see the chasm between God and any creature is bigger than whatever it is you to exalt the highest creature over the lowest creature. And so... If somebody believes that Jesus Christ is created in any form or fashion, well, I should, I should qualify that. That, because uh, when Jesus came to earth, 
he existed before his incarnation, right? He's eternal. He's the, he is the second member of the one true God. Yet his human nature was created. And so I should say, I want to distinguish there. But they would not say that he, that the, that Jesus, the person Jesus, is also the one true God, eternal, co-equal with God. And again, it distinguishes saving faith and unsaving faith. I think if you if you have to if you have to fine point it, there's where you put it. Is Jesus Christ the one true God? Is Jesus Christ eternal? Is he equal with God? All of these things, those questions of um, equality, not created, you know, fully divine, is is the ultimate uh, test of whether you have saving faith. And that's what I usually end up talking to somebody. You know, what do you, who do you what do you say about Jesus? Who do you think he is? And you know, there's usually reverence there. But if you pin somebody down to you, so you really think he's the one true God. He's he has created everything. He sustains everything. And there's where you're going to find out. There's where the rubber meets the road. I think if you push somebody far enough, not you know, not in an argumentative way, but if you pin them down long enough, or even you know, sometimes they'll even make it a skeptical question, like you really think Jesus Christ? I mean, do you think he, that guy, the man, Jesus Christ, is also created everything? He's also the one sustaining everything right now. He's upholding the universe. Come on, do you really believe that? And I'll do it in a skeptical way, just so I'm not leading them into a certain answer. And you'll find out quickly, usually that most people will say, well, I'm not sure. And see, and I do believe that saving faith is certain faith. It's not, maybe he is God, maybe he isn't God. It is, oh, he's God. And, and there's no, there's no uh, negotiation on that. And that spirit, driven faith now can you have times of confusion and things like that of course you can but i think when the when it ultimately comes down to it regeneration causes a person to go from believing that jesus is not god to believing that he is god ultimately and that is a faith that is granted and given and sustained by the spirit and it never it will never fail now again we know that you can have human failures like peter did when he denied him but ultimately, in his heart, he never denied him. In his heart, he he knew he knew him, but he would never deny that Jesus is God, because he he was regenerated. Does that help with that? Questions, comments, complaints. All right. So I don't know here the response if that's saving response or not. If they believe he's just a great prophet, that's not a saving response. The next comment says God has visited his people. Well, if they're saying that God in, in, in the form of a human being, Jesus, has visited his people, then yes, that's good. But if it has, it, it seems to me that this is more indicating that God has visited his people through a prophet. God has sent a prophet into the world. And Jesus is, is a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. He's also God himself. All right. I mean, we're not going to get into the whole Trinitarian things right now, but the detail there. All right. This is interesting. The notice that said touching the coffin was usually a defilement. Mm-hmm. Yep. There were ceremonial laws of Israel that did deal with those issues. But yes, and of course he had a prostitute an ex-prostitute, or, you know, she was a saved person who was a prostitute who washed his feet with her hair, and and that, that's what caused some of the Pharisees to, you know, they were being sinful in their evaluation, but they said, well, how does, if he, knew, if, he, if he truly were from God, he would know what kind of a woman this was, but it's still, you note that he was being touched by a woman in a, in a way that I, you know, we would, I wouldn't be able to do that without having some kind of response, but he did, because he was, he is the, you know, again, he's truly God, truly human. And that brings up that question and I, that a lot of people will talk about was, could, did Jesus have the potential to sin? We know he didn't sin. But did Jesus have the potential to sin? And that's something that people argue about frequently. And there's two sides to that. Of course, God, being God, God cannot be tempted. And then, but also, you, my question always was, well, in order for him to 
genuinely live a life that qualifies us by his imputation to be righteous, which is what happens, then it had to be legitimate temptation in order for that to be real. And so you have that, that discussion to go back and forth. What would you say? Do you think Jesus could be tempted? What do you think? Could Jesus be tempted? Tempted by what? Could he have sinned? No. Okay. Yeah, I would agree with that. My, my best summary of it is, is that uh, he was truly God and truly human. So we have one person, Jesus Christ, but he had two natures. According to his divine nature, he could not be tempted. But according to his human nature, he could be tempted. And, as it, and the Bible says he was tempted in all ways as us, but without sin. And so he I think there, but I don't think he could have sinned. I don't think he had that potential because of his divine nature. That the the person Jesus could not have could not did not actually have the possibility to actually sin because of his divine nature. But again, according to his human nature, he was tempted and it was a real temptation. But I still think, and there's people who say that in order for it to be a legitimate temptation, then there had to be some kind of potential for Jesus to sin in order for it to be a real temptation. And I understand that argument. Um, but I also, you have to understand that he's truly God also. And so I tend to lean towards he, he, he um, although tempted in a real way to his human nature, and he struggled. I mean, there was a struggle with sin. Oh, I'm always careful with those. Whenever I say something, I'm like, did I get that right? We're dealing with the primary issue here. Uh, well, I'll show, what do you think about him in the garden right before he is about to go into his Passion Week? And he's, he's struggling with what's coming. He's, he is in so intensely... Uh, I don't want to say anxiety because anxiety is a sin, but he was obviously under such duress that he was sweating blood, and he was a, it was a real struggle there. So there, to me, shows through his human nature there was a struggle with what was about to happen. Okay, and so so it was a legitimate struggle. I mean, you can see that, and he was weary, and he would get tired, and he you know he had struggles that we have, as it says he was tempted in all ways that we are, yet he did not sin. And so we know he didn't sin, but the, the question always is, could he have? Like in the garden, could he have given in to that? And I don't think so, because he was also truly God. But that doesn't, you see the other side, though, it doesn't uh, diminish his struggle against sin. It was real, and it was especially right there, you saw it in its full, but again, he said, not my will, your will. See, we would have broken, like, cheap suit. You know, given that situation, we would not have been able to endure that. There's no way knowing what's coming. That's what, you know, makes Jesus such a glorious Savior is he could have stopped any of that anytime he wanted to. He could have stopped all the beating, all of the crucifixion. He, he could have. He said, nobody takes my life from me. He, he did that all voluntarily. And so that's what makes the temptation even more elevated in my mind is that he actually could have said, I'm not doing this. Whether that would have been, I mean, it would have been uh, I, hate to, I hate to speculate. You don't want to go too. Yes, I'll do that. You know, but you think it would have been disobedience to the Father. So, but hey, regardless, I think going back to the question of, of could he have sinned? I don't think so. I don't think he could have. But again, you see the real struggle in his human nature. Well, that was his plan from the beginning. To, that, you know, the Satan's head would be crushed. Yes. Yes. So this would just. Yes, yes, it was. You're right. It was decreed from the beginning. It was, it was, but it still was carried out in time and space. And so this is a real moment in Christ's life where he was under extreme temptation. And of course, when we already went through when he was in the wilderness with Satan, those are real temptations that he responded to righteously every single time in thought and everything else. And but the issue of did he have any potential to sin is what usually people argue about. And I say ultimately the person of Christ did not have the potential to sin because the person of Christ is also truly God. And God cannot be tempted. God cannot sin. And so, but that's again, you're kind of uh, 
I guess you call it splitting hairs, but uh, an interesting conversation. How we got there, I don't know. I don't either. <laughs> All right, so we'll go on to verse eighteen now, and we'll and we'll deal with some other subjects here. All right, the disciples of John reporting to him about all these things. Okay, these things include what just happened there, you know, where he healed the um, the sick slave about to die in chapter in earlier in chapter seven, and then this one, this raising uh, this person from the dead. So, so where John is, where the apostle? All right, we're talking about John the Baptist here, I should say. In verse 18. Where's John the Baptist at this time? He's in jail. He's in jail. And so he, um, the, so the disciples of John came to him in jail and reported to him what Jesus is doing. Okay. In verse 19, summoning two of his disciples, John, John the Baptist, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many peoples of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are, the dead are raised up, which is what he just did. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. All right. So this is a difficult issue. All right. Because um, as we're about to see in the next couple of verses here in a little bit, where Jesus calls John the Baptist the greatest Um, let's see here, where am I at here? Verse 26, where it says, um, oh, okay, verse 28, which we're not getting to yet. We might get there today. I say to you, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. So that's what Jesus says about John the Baptist. Of those greater, of those born of women, there's no one greater. That's a pretty good compliment, right, to have Jesus say that you're, you're greater than anyone who's ever been born on a human level. And yet, we just read, and you see what John the Baptist, what is John the Baptist doing here? He blessed him. He says, but you see, he's questioning in his mind, is he the Messiah? Right. And so you sit there and you think, okay, sure. the greatest of men amongst men born of women is struggling with his faith right there. Now, as we talked about, we, you know, there's, there's no doubt that John the Baptist was saved and regenerated. As a matter of fact, he was regenerated before he got born. Different issue. Um, and we went through a lot of this stuff when we went through uh, chapters 2 and 3. I think it was in 3, where we dealt with uh, John the Baptist in a very detailed way, that he was the forerunner to Christ. And very simple man, but he ended up getting thrown in jail. But you see here that he's actually questioning whether Christ is the Messiah. Is he the, is he the expected one? Or are we looking for somebody else? Now, why do you think he's thinking that? It says here. No cheating. <laughs> yes. Right here. So, so many unexpected events. John in prison, Christ encountering uh, hostility and unbelief. He wanted reassurance. Yes. And see, John the Baptist was the forerunner to the Messiah, but here's one thing that's always good to remember, is that they expected the Messiah to bring in a kingdom. And, and, and they didn't understand the delay that we've had, the church age. And so that, there's a lot of scriptures in the Old Testament where you, you talk about the Messiah's coming, arrival, and then it flows right into the Millennial Kingdom is what will ultimately fulfill this. And i got a couple examples here. This is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
So you see there, for a child will be born to us. That's talking about the incarnation. And then the very next verse, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And so you see that the incarnation, this first coming, they saw it flowing right into he's going to rule. And so instead of what has happened is he was obviously crucified, raised, and then ascended, and now we're waiting for him to return to set up that government that we have not seen. But there was not, you couldn't see that. This, that was a mystery that you couldn't see in the, in the Old Testament, and they couldn't see it. And so he's expecting Jesus for things to be going better than they are. He's in jail, the forerunner to the Messiah, and his kingdom is in jail, and he ends up getting killed, obviously. And Jesus is, in, like uh, MacArthur says, enduring all kinds of persecution. And so that's why he question. He's like, you know, he knows his Old Testament scriptures. He's like, we're, we're supposed to be having the kingdom set up here. And so they didn't, again, you don't see the mystery in one other, Micah 5.2, but as for you, Bethlehem, and there's an E word there I can't pronounce, um, too little to be among the clans of Judah. And here we go. From you, one will go forth. Um, oh, wait a minute. I should read the whole thing here. Um, yeah, but as for you, Bethlehem, uh, I can't get that word. He's going to try it. I know. EEP, it sounds like Ephrata. Ephrata. Thank you. Too little. Um, to be among the clans of Judah, for or from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. For his his going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity, and that shows you the eternal nature of the divine nature of Christ. But it shows you here from Bethlehem, which what happened in Bethlehem, he was born into the to the manger, and then the next verse says he'll go forth to be ruler in Israel, and so they expected him to rule in Israel. And he will rule in Israel. This doesn't, again, this shows you, you know, when somebody's talking about um, eschatology and whether, whether uh, you know, God's done with Israel, well, it says Jesus Christ will rule in Israel. That's where he's going to rule from. And so there's no way that you could never, you could, you're going you're to have to have a nation of believers where he rules in. And so I think that's just another verse showing that He's going to be, he is the king of Israel. One day he will rule there, but he hasn't yet. They killed him, and he was raised, and they ascended, and, the, and what we're waiting for now is the tribulation period, and at the end of the tribulation period, when Israel gets saved, they get converted, they believe in him, he'll return to save them from the distress going on in the tribulation period, but also to set up the millennial kingdom where he will rule. That will be fulfilled. But John the Baptist didn't see that gap, nor did Peter. Because remember in the book of Acts, the, right before he ascended, the last, one of the last questions they asked him was, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They expected it then too. And so they didn't see the future, in, in the, especially the long gap that we've had. But one day, and they are very likely in my opinion, one day soon, these events will trigger off that it will end up being, he will end up ruling in Israel. So that was his confusion. And Jesus answers him with the messianic credentials. These are messianic credentials is what he gives them. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the levers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. And so, and, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And so those are, in the, in, in matter of fact, in the note there, um, the poor have the gospel preached to them was, a, I think, a continuation of what Jesus quoted the first time he sat in the synagogue and opened up, yeah, Isaiah 61.1. It's from the same passage Jesus read in the Nazareth synagogue. And so he, so these are all, he's giving John the Baptist his messianic credentials, what's going on here. Um, and so I'm sure that did comfort him more, but he might, he still probably was confused. Okay, if you are the Messiah. Well, why am I in jail? Why is the forerunner in jail? And um, again, he didn't, they didn't understand everything. All right, and then at the very end there, verse 23, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And that ultimately is what it comes down to. What side of that issue you fall on. If you take offense at Christ, that means you love your sin, and you're lost. If you don't take offense at Christ, you're blessed, because, you're, because you've been humbled by God, and you don't like your pride, 
and you want to trust in his work. And so it really is that simple. The offense of the cross is it tells people they're sinners. It, it, the, the cross crushes every drop of pride. It should crush every drop of pride. But that's why people refuse to come. Most a lot of people refuse to come to him because they realize you have to surrender your pride. Which is false pride anyway. You shouldn't have pride. You shouldn't be proud of yourself if you're a sinner. But that's the issue with sin is it's a deceiving thing. All right, so verse 24. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Um, lost my spot there. All right, uh, yeah, verse 25. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. So, he began to speak to the crowds about John the Baptist. He Obviously, there was probably a public conversation about what was going on there, a little bit enough for the people to know that they were talking about John. And maybe they heard the conversation that he just told the disciples. That's probably likely what happened. And um, and he addresses John and he explains, is, is John a prophet? Yes, he is. But more important than that, he is, he is the forerunner. And I don't know if you remember, we, we specifically dealt with that issue um, about the forerunner, about how he was the forerunner to Christ in his Messianic kingdom. And then he says, there's other places where he said, you know, he would have in there about the, you know, the end of the very last section of, we went through this in detail, the very last section of the Old Testament talks about Elijah the prophet coming back in the spirit and power of Elijah. And that's who John the Baptist was, the, the fulfillment of that potentially. But he, but. It's, and Jesus also said, if they would have, if you would accept it, if the nation of Israel would have accepted Christ, then he would have fulfilled that ministry of the forerunner. But since they rejected him, obviously, and they had him killed, there are there is going to be a future fulfillment of that forerunner prophets. And we went into a little bit of detail about the speculation on how that could work itself out. But you see the you see the. Uh, you know, obviously, can you imagine being Isaiah or Ezekiel or these, you know, these major prophets who actually, you know, Isaiah was had a vision of of God of Christ in His glory, and it just about ruined him because I mean, just again, every time somebody comes into the presence of the Lord in Scripture. It's traumatic because the sinful, because even the prophets who were saved and more righteous than probably anybody around them were still devastated by their sin when they become when they come into the presence of God. And but but even all of them, that Jesus says John the Baptist is greater than that. Why? Because he's the forerunner. He's the one specifically sent directly ahead of Jesus Christ to prepare the way. His job was to prepare, again, his, his, John the Baptist's ministry was to Israel. Didn't have anything to do with us. He, he, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. But John the Baptist was sent to Israel to prepare them for their king and their Messiah. And some did. There were some ones who, who got baptized, the baptism of repentance and became followers of John the Baptist in the meantime, then they eventually would end up following Christ because, well, he was, he was just the forerunner, and when the fulfillment of the forerunner came on the scene, they would go follow him. But again, it was a humble, repentant heart is what that preparation was for them. But as we know, the vast majority of Israel rejected him and ultimately ended up turning on him and having him crucified. And so it did not qualify John the Baptist to fulfill that forerunner position. I think at the in the in the tribulation period there's going to be people sent to Israel again. And 
to prepare them, to explain to them what's going on in the tribulation period. And then by God's grace, this is the difference between what happened the first time Christ came and, this, and what happens at the end of the tribulation period. God will regenerate Israel. And, and this goes to what we, talk, what we talk about all the time with election, individual election, where you know anybody hearing the preaching of Christ can and should repent and believe and be saved. Every last one of us could. Okay? Just with the external call that is our obligation to hear the truth and believe the truth. But since we love the inward love of sin dominates the fallen sinner, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness we 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 refuse to believe. This is what they did the first time. They refused to believe because they loved their sin. And the Pharisees' love for sin would be what? What was the sin the Pharisees loved? Idols. Right. They received glory to them. They loved pride. They were the religious people. They were the leaders. You know, everybody looked up to them. And so, typically when you have false religion, the sin that you hold on to, that you refuse to let go of, that causes you to refuse to believe in Christ, is pride. Pride is a wicked, addictive thing. And um, but going back to my point is that, and so they should, the, the nation of Israel they should have, especially the Pharisees, the one who they knew the scriptures better than anybody. They should have seen their Messiah prophesied all throughout the Old Testament and recognized him and believed in him, but they refused because they loved their pride and other sins too. I'm sure, and God left them in their unbelief. He left them there. Again, so the refusal to believe in Christ individually, or in this case, corporately for Israel, they're held accountable for their unbelief. And God just doesn't do anything else. He leaves them in their willful rejection. But the same thing with individual salvation for the elect, for us, when we believed and came to Christ, God did an additional work of grace individually in our hearts. He he overruled, he moved our will in a way that overruled our love for sin and overruled our hatred of God and turned that around to where we repented, we hated, we, we confessed our sin, we hated it, we now struggle against our sin, and we believe in Christ. But again, that's, that was only because of a sovereign additional work of grace that he did in our hearts. And now the same thing is going to happen with Israel. At the end of the tribulation period, God's not going to leave them in their willful unbelief anymore. He's going to work sovereignly and effectively and every single individual Israelite left at the end of the tribulation period at the same time. So he's in, in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 14, it talks about how he'll pour out a spirit of supplication. Well, they, that's right there explains it. He's going to pour that out all over Israel, over everyone left who's a true ethnic Jew. At the end of the tribulation period, he's going to pour out a spirit of supplication. He's going to regenerate them. And so then when they get regenerated, what do they do? They will turn to the Lord in, in, in humility. That's what the spirit of supplication does to a person. It causes you to be humbled. But in this case, it's going to be national, not just an individual thing. It will be an individual thing. You know, I always try and clarify that, you know, because there's a lot of false religions that teach that you've you got to be saved in a group. And so I always clarify that, that no, salvation is individual. Especially in, in, in now and, and forever, it's you can't be saved. You know, they say that God has no grandchildren. You know, no, you know, my faith won't do anything for Gracie. You know, your faith didn't do anything for me. My faith didn't do anything for you know anybody else. They hey, they have to individually confess their sinfulness and believe the gospel themselves. And and so so salvation is individual, and personal between you and God. And so I'm going to quick clarify, but in this situation with Israel, they will do that, but all at the same time. Every one of them left. And again, if you want to see that, you go to Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 14, and you see it very clearly detailed on how that God does that. And that's necessary, that will happen. And so you see, at this time, the forerunners, will, it will qualify them to be the forerunners because... Ultimately, God will do a regenerating work in their hearts, and, and all Israel will be saved at the end of the tribulation period. So we, and we went through that a little more specifically in detail there. 
So, so again, it's, it's, you know, incredible that, um, to, you know, I just think, can't imagine being John the Baptist. And of course he's not hearing this. He's in jail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, he, Jesus quotes in, in verse, um, 27, this is the one about whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, ahead of who? Ahead of Christ, who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, and this is what we read earlier, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he, and this is our last point we'll do today, yet he who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. All right, so we, we already talked about how Jesus describes John the Baptist as, I mean, this is pretty nice to be known. He, first off, he's more than a prophet. That's pretty good. He's the forerunner. That's pretty good. But then he says, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. And so... And I think you can understand that the reason that is is because John the Baptist was full of the Holy Spirit even in his mother's womb. And we went through that when we were in earlier Luke. And that is, you know, we, we went through the discussion on whether he was actually regenerated in the womb or how that would work. But you see, he definitely, God sovereignly led his life to be where he was a very righteous man. He was a very simple man. Obviously, he lived in the wilderness, ate what was it, uh, locusts and wild honey, and so and he wore uh, sackcloth. So a very very simple man, and that's what Jesus just said to him. He's like, "What did you got to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? No, that's those people were in luxurious palaces, but John the Baptist was about as simple man as you can get. But he was also, according to Jesus, the most righteous." saved but unglorified man who's ever lived but you see there in verse in verse um, 28 he says yet he who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he and so I think there is a description of somebody anybody see we will all and so will John the Baptist will be glorified at the rapture of the church and Jesus is saying here that the least in my opinion that Jesus is saying here that the least in the kingdom of God the least person who's glorified with the fewest amount of rewards for their Christian service is greater than John the Baptist because your glorified body is a huge difference than your unglorified body and we see that there's a real big long discussion of and MacArthur's got a real good Um, series on the resurrection and you give it I think the best section you can find about that in detail is in 1 Corinthians 15 and I'll begin reading at verse 35 but someone will say how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come you fool that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies and that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. The glory, there is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. And so here we get into a little bit of the detail here. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable, a perishable body. This is what John the Baptist is in right now. It is raised an imperishable body. Imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. 
So as it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. And it goes on. And then I'll read a little bit more here in verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Even right now, this, even though we're saved Christians, the bodies that we live in, we could not enter the kingdom of God in this because we still have unredeemed sinful flesh. It needs to be changed. Nor does the perishable inherit the, the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, and this is when you get into the rapture mystery. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. This is when we get your glorified body. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, this mortal will have been put on immortality. Then will come the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the result of all of this, therefore, there's always a therefore, why, what should you do with this information? My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And so a quick point there is one of the motivations that should keep you serving is, is the picturing that day. You're, we're all heading towards that day, Christian, and we shouldn't be. We should. We don't deserve to be heading towards that day, but we are heading towards that day. And you see the description there of, especially back in verse 43, where it talks about it being sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. So we will have a physical body for the rest of eternity. But when we receive that at the rapture, whether we're dead or alive, if you're dead, if you're a dead Christian at the rapture, you'll be raised and you'll be trained, you'll be changed. And if you're alive at the rapture, you'll be changed without dying. But you're going to receive a body that is indescribably better than what we have. And it's you know all those descriptions there talk about you know mortality, immortality, perishable, imperishable. But I think the the best contrast there is it's sown in dishonor. It's, it's sown in sin, even, even believers. Talking about believers here being resurrected. Our unglorified bodies are still corrupted by sin. That's why we struggle. Is we've been given a new inner man, but we are still in unredeemed flesh. And so that's why the struggle is hard every day. Because we have dishonorable bodies. Yet that will be all be changed. And the, 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 I don't think we can even possibly imagine the greatness of that, how that will feel, be, the joy, the you know, because I just don't think we can imagine it. But you can try, yeah. and it's going to be really good. But you see the difference, and I think this goes back to what we're talking about with John the Baptist. He's the greatest in an unglorified body. That's what Jesus says. It's a pretty good compliment. Yet he is not. He's worse. He's less than the least somebody who's glorified. And you can see way less because no matter you know we talk you know periodically about rewards and and it makes a difference how you serve the Lord and 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 we'll all receive a glorified body but there's some kind of a you know rewards that are attached to how you serve the Lord and its motivation but even whoever has served the Lord the least or the the least effectively or whatever you'd phrase that will be greater than John the Baptist by far because he's glorified and so I, that's one thing I've always struggled with rewards in general is I think I'll just be satisfied with this raised glorified body than having to, you know, add on top of it. I'm not, I'm not saying I'll say no, but I'm saying, yeah, but it should be motivation. And they're at the end of chapter 15 where it talks about, and there really is, if you really focus upon that moment of that's what we're working for, and so that's why the command is there's always, whenever there's a massive doctrine taught, and that's about the most detail you get on the resurrected body, then the result of that is not just, hey, there you go, you're going to get a body. It's, hey, the, the result of that should be you should be immovable. You're going to get that one way or the other. 
If, if you die for your faith today, you're going to get that. You'll, your spirit, you're, you won't get your body until the rapture, but you'll, your spirit will be with the Lord. But one day, the next time you know anything with your body, you'll be raised imperishable. And so that should be a motivation to always abound in the work of the Lord. And so, so that's why I say there's a big difference in even the most righteous, unglorified person like John the Baptist and the least of the one in the kingdom of God. But when you saw the response, when the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice having been baptized with the baptism of John. And so they believed what Jesus was saying. Why? Because they, they, had been, they had been prepared, and we talk about how he was the forerunner, and they, when you took the baptism of John, that was a baptism of repentance. And so, you know, it's hard to know how, and I don't want to get into the details of all, whether, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that if you really genuinely from your heart took the baptism of John the Baptist, then you got saved at that point. You know, that you, you humbled yourself and believed in the Messiah who is not only to come. That's how all, all Old Testament people were saved. Was was they, they acknowledged their sinfulness and they looked forward to the Messiah coming. I'm going to Adam's room. I'm tired and there's a bed in there and there's not a rabbit in here. We're, just, we're about done. We're about done, hon. I'm, I'm And so they looked forward to the Messiah. And, and by the people of John the Baptist's time, they looked immediately forward to the Messiah. And so I think when they took the baptism of repentance genuinely from their heart, they were already converted. But it kind of makes it sound like here that, that when they heard this, they, they, they acknowledged God's justice in a sense of salvationly. But I think they were, already sa they were already saved and they were just agreeing because they had been converted. Where the other response is the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected this message. Why? Because they had not been baptized by John. Why had they not been baptized by John? Because it was a baptism of repentance, of, of humbling themselves, and they didn't think they needed it. And that's the whole problem with anybody with pride, is, is what keeps you from wanting a Savior is because you don't think you need one. And if you don't think you need one, well, you're not going to believe in one. And again, where does that root from? Pride. Pride. All right, well, we got the exact... So I, I, I titled that one, Death. Wait, let's see here. Death, because he raised somebody from the dead. Doubt, because John the Baptist doubted. And a big difference, where the resurrected body is a, is, will be a difference. That, I'm trying... I'm going to start to do the alliteration like everybody else does, because then it helps. I guess that's why they do it. They know what they're doing. They know what they're talking about, don't they? All right, well, next week we'll continue on then with Luke.